Join Dr. Robert McGoring for Outliving Cancer, the podcast that provides each patient the tools and information they need to outlive their cancer. This is Dr. Robert McGorney with Outliving Cancer. Our topic today is going to be the somewhat facetious comment, drugs don't know what diseases they were invented for. In cancer medicine today, there are over 100 FDA-approved drugs used for treatment. Each of these drugs is separated into different categories based on mechanism of action, modes of administration, oral versus intravenous, toxicity and side effects, relative efficacy, one disease versus another, and then finally, indication. Indication. And what indication really stipulates is that the FDA has weighed in and granted this particular pharmaceutical product the right to be sold for a given purpose. That's called an FDA indication. But how do we define a drug's indication? How do we decide that this drug is going to be used in breast cancer and this drug for colon cancer or or lymphoma or or, uh, non-small cell lung cancer versus small cell lung cancer? Well, to get to that point is a rather arduous process that begins way back at the first point where a drug or molecule is conceived by a scientist, usually a PhD medicinal chemist, looking at a problem, comes up with a compound or an extract or isolates a new biological and suggests that this could be of interest for therapies. Many of the pharmaceutical companies actually develop drugs in different realms. For example, some companies are developing antibacterial agents at the same time that they're developing antiviral agents at the same time they're developing anti-cancer agents. And every once in a while, an antiviral drug winds up in the cancer realm. That's actually true of a drug called gemcitabine that was originally developed by Eli Lilly Company as an antiviral and then found itself being used for cancer. In any case, once a drug is conceived of, and it is formulated, and they come up with a pure uh, way to deliver it, the drug goes through a long process of being evaluated in in preclinical models. These include cell lines, which are continually grown cancer cells. And then it goes into animal models like mice. And then it might go into larger animals like beagle dogs. And then finally, um, it may even find itself in in, uh, primates before it goes to phase one trial. And the phase one trial is designed to determine whether or not the drug can be administered. Can it be given? That's a safety profile that actually doesn't have any particular focus on efficacy. It's only at the phase two level where the drug is determined for efficacy, and that's disease by disease. So the, the drug is tested for colon versus lung and different schedules, different dosing. And finally, if it achieves some level of benefit, it goes to phase three and it gets compared to other drugs. And it's that process, that phase three trial, where you say, this drug is better than everything else we've got today. That's the one that the FDA scrutinizes. They really want to know if you've come up with something that's A, safe, and B, effective. So that's the dictum of the FDA, safe and effective. Once a drug is proven that it's safe and at least comparably effective to anything out there and has filled a niche, 
the FDA will smile on it, and the drug gets an approval, and the pharmaceutical uh, corporation can sell it. So let's drill down onto FDA approval. Well, as noted, the drug is, is identified, studied, modes of action are considered, disease targets, data is generated in clinical trials, and then large statistical tools are applied to these populations. Now, it would be one thing if drugs worked brilliantly, particularly in cancer. I remember there was a paper in the New England Journal of Medicine some years ago by an investigator named Jordan Gutterman. And I was very impressed. This was in the 1980s. I was very impressed that the New England Journal of Medicine, which is a stellar journal and really the pinnacle of publication in many medical fields, the New England Journal of Medicine published a paper on the use of alpha interferon in the treatment of an untreatable malignancy called hairy cell leukemia. Now, it turns out that that leading article was published with only seven patients. Seven patients. My God, most of these clinical trials have 1,000 or 4,000 patients. So what was it about these seven patients? Well, five of the seven got better. And the, and the results were so remarkable that the drug was a winner immediately because there was no therapy at the time for hairy cell leukemia. And it was, a, it was a brilliant breakthrough. Now, today it isn't necessarily the treatment for that disease. But the reason I remember the article is because five patients determined an FDA indication. And it was because it worked that well. Well, the problem is that in most cancer therapies today, they don't work well. They don't work really almost at all. So in order to find whether a drug is better than the alternative, it takes hundreds or thousands of patients. You see, if you have a tiny benefit, a tiny improvement, then statistical significance can only be achieved if that tiny improvement is in a large enough number of people that you achieve a p-value that says, okay, this group is different from that. So that's why many of these clinical trials have hundreds or thousands of patients because the advances are so incremental. So, we now find drugs being approved because they barely slip over the edge of statistical significance, and a drug that is just barely more effective than the old drug gets approved. Now, that process has led us to 100 FDA-approved drugs, virtually none that are curative, many of which are quite expensive, and all of which are associated with significant toxicity. So I'd like to kind of examine this process through the lens of my own experience and see how using a different approach, a different model, a different concept, could lead to a much faster, better way to do this. So I'll draw upon my own experience, and that goes back in my career. When I first arrived in California, I was uh, coming from Washington, D.C. I had done a fellowship in solid tumor oncology at Georgetown University. And as I left Georgetown, I wanted to complete an additional year of hematology. And so I traveled to California, and I arrived at the Scripps Institute, which is this august institution uh, in La Jolla. And I, and I worked uh, there after I was interviewed and, and got the position for the hematology fellowship. I remember meeting with Dr. Ernest Beutler, who was truly a, a, a stellar hematologist. I, I had always known his work, and he had written one of the best textbooks of hematology, and I felt genuinely proud to be considered for the position. And I remember when I first arrived, before I was accepted, I was first arrived, and I met with his right-hand man who was running the 
basic and clinical research program at Scrubs. And that was a, a Dr. Dennis Carson. And Dennis was a rather slender, very athletic, he was a runner, and he was very clever. And I really enjoyed my interview with him. And I remember we had a sort of funny, iconoclastic discussion because we were talking about cancer research. And this was principally a hematologic program. But we were talking about cancer research and how slow it had moved and how you have to think out of the box. And he said, yes, that he thought you'd be better off to read Kidney International than the cancer journals because you'd probably get a good idea from Kidney International. And there seemed to be so few good and new ideas in the cancer literature. Anyway, we kind of hit it off, and he uh, smiled on my application, and I got the position. And it was shortly after that that I became familiar with Dennis's work. He had synthesized a compound called chlorodeoxyadenosine, 2CDA, working with a guy named Bruce Wasson. They had actually invented a drug. This is really, to me, impressive. And they were testing this drug in a, in a model they were using. And the model they were using was a cell line. Now, this is really common in cancer research. We use cell lines. Now, cell lines are cells taken from a human body some distant past time and propagated, maintained, cultured, amplified in culture media for years, sometimes decades. And these cells become the model for the development of drugs. So if you want to test a drug for a leukemia, you get a leukemia cell line that probably came from a child or an adult 25 years ago. And you can buy them, thaw them out, grow them in media, and they become your model. They become your test site. So they had developed a drug, chlorodeoxidenzine, and they were testing it against different cell lines. One kind of cell line came from a group of leukemias called T, as in Thomas, T cells. And another uh, group had come from B, as in Boyd, B cells. So they were working on the drug, and it appeared from their studies that it was really better in the T cell, CEM, T cell, cell line, and not as good in the Dowdy B cell, cell line. So they decided that the drug would go forward for T cells. And when I arrived and they were doing their clinical trials initially, they were giving this to patients who were asking for consultations, patients who had T cell, a relatively rare form of lymphoma and leukemia. And as the drug was moving along, I asked whether I might be able to test this new compound in my laboratory. And they said, well, I guess you can have some. And Bruce Wasson very kindly gave me a little vial of this pink solution, and I put it into uh, my laboratory, and I began to take patients' tissues. Now, I work in human primary culture. I work in cells directly from people, so I don't use cell lines. I never use cell lines. I don't like those continuous cell lines that are you know, just reproductions of one another, like getting a second opinion and getting the same opinion again and again. You want a new opinion. You want a, you want a, a novel insight. So I use fresh tissue right out of people. And I'd been reading at the time about, about you know, one particular disease that seemed so troubling called hairy cell leukemia. And there was a compound being developed called deoxycofromycin. And for all the world, it looked like 2CDA to me. It had a, had a very similar mechanism of action. It looked like it would be the same kind of drug. So I was looking around to see if I could test this idea that 2CDA, this compound that was being tested in T cells, I just wanted to see if that drug might work in another disease. And I happened to have the opportunity. There was a patient having his spleen removed, which was a treatment for a very bad form of leukemia called hairy cell leukemia. And I asked the surgeon, could I, could I have some of that spleen? Could I, could I get a biopsy of that guy? They said, sure, it's a giant spleen. We don't need it. And I took a portion of this fellow named Jamie, and I took his spleen 
And I took it to my laboratory and I broke up all the cells and put them in test tubes. And I ran the chlorodeoxyadenosine drug, this drug that had been developed at Scripps, this brilliant breakthrough drug that no one knew how to use. It, was, it wasn't looking that good in T cells. It wasn't really working very well. So I dumped it into my hairy cell leukemia patient's tissue and it killed every cell. Down the line, every single cell died. And I went back and said, gee, guys, I think that you are barking up the wrong tree with this drug. I think in the human tissue environment, it actually works for this rare form of leukemia, this hairy cell leukemia. And I really think you want to use this drug for hairy cell leukemia. Well, I remember I got, shall we say, dismissive responses from many of the doctors at Scripps because my tissue culture system, from their standpoint, wasn't validated. And so why would they want to spend time testing my idea in their patients. And I said, well, you know, guys, I really think this will work, and it would be a great idea. And it was rather frustrating because I, I just couldn't, I couldn't get them to, to take the bait. I couldn't get them to try it. Well, one of the junior fellows who was working a year behind me did listen and tested it and put that 2-CDA, adenosine, leucistatin, to the test. And he gave it to people with hairy cell leukemia, and it cured every one of them. Absolutely every patient who got it got better. One week of 2-CDA and hairy cell leukemia went away forever. It was so effective that it became the treatment for hairy cell leukemia all over the world. That discovery, that observation made in human tissue changed the history of that disease. And hairy cell leukemia today is a relatively easy disease to treat because of that discovery that 2-CDA worked with the disease. Now, when 2-CDA was discovered, it had no idea it was going to work for hairy cell leukemia. It just so happens that it did. Drugs don't know what diseases they were invented for. Another example, another experience like that, was in a related compound called gemcitabine. Now, gemcitabine is a, another small molecule. It's of the class called anti-metabolites, which means it blocks or acts like DNA precursors and blocks DNA synthesis. So the antimetabolites, like chlorodeoxyadenosine I talked about a moment ago, the antimetabolites like gemcitabine have a very specific role at a very specific point in the cell cycle. And gemcitabine was developed by a fellow by the name of Peter Tarasov, um, working with the Eli Lilly chemists. And it was a very interesting compound. It uh, put fluorines, the atom fluorine, onto the uh, molecule in a way that made the molecule very effective. And gemcitabine, or geminal, difluorodeoxycytidine, gemcitabine, was languishing in the development of drugs because no one knew quite what to do with it. So I went to an American Association meeting, and I met Peter Tarasov, and he kindly gave me some of the drug. And I began to test it in my laboratory. And I tested it in a lot of different diseases, leukemias and lymphomas and breast and colon and all kinds of stuff. And we tested it over and over, and we found that it had a very, very favorable profile in certain diseases. But there was no question, no question, but that profile was clearly better when the drug was combined with a second drug, cisplatin. 
In any case, during my early work in this regard, I was wondering, well, where will we put gemcitabine? After all, Eli Lilly Company was going to get gemcitabine into pancreas cancer. That was going to be their target. Gemcitabine as the therapy for pancreas. And in fact, they did a clinical trial, and gemcitabine turned out to work well enough in pancreas cancer that it got an FDA approval in 1996, the first approval of gemcitabine in any disease. However, working in this area, I had the luxury of testing gemcitabine in colon and breast and sarcoma and bladder and lung and lymphoma. I was testing gemcitabine against everything. And lo and behold, the gemcitabine drug that was being developed and gotten approval as a single agent for pancreas cancer was very much better when it was administered with platinum to ovarian cancer and breast cancer and lung cancer and bladder cancer and even lymphoma. And we were working in the laboratory characterizing the activity for this drug that was a pancreas drug. Gemcitabine was a pancreas drug. But pancreatic carcinoma that constitutes tens of thousands of patients per year and is very difficult to treat and cure, gemcitabine was clearly, clearly going to find a niche in a broad array of other diseases, and no one was looking. So I traveled to Washington, D.C. to give a presentation. I actually traveled to Indianapolis to give a lecture to the Eli Lilly Company, and I said, guys, you should be looking at this drug in a lot of different areas. Now, you have to remember, this is the mid-1990s. I'm giving this drug to patients with advanced triple negative breast cancer in 1995 and showing dramatic responses. And all the while, the drug is being sold under FDA indication for cancer of the pancreas. In fact, it was rather difficult to get gemcitabine for patients with advanced recurrent triple negative breast cancer, or ovarian cancer, or uterine cancer, because there was no FDA indication. So you find that a drug that is highly active can't be used, not because it doesn't work, not because it doesn't make sense, not because my laboratory test didn't show that it would work, but because it didn't have an FDA indication. And those sorts of experiences became increasingly embittering as we moved through the 90s and, and onward, and we're still fighting with governmental entities, regulatory agencies, and principally insurers to get a drug that clearly manifestly worked. Well, year after year, the clinical trial process slowly caught up with our laboratory, and gemcitabine got indications in breast cancer, and then due to, to some clinical trials, got indications in ovarian cancer, and then due to additional clinical trials, got an indication in sarcoma, and slowly, one by one by one, all of the observations that we had made in the 90s were coming to FDA indications in the 2000s and beyond. So eight or 10 years of active therapy were missed because the 
oversight regulatory approval process was too slow to catch up with reality. Again, drugs don't know what diseases they were invented for. One of the most striking experiences with this drug was in the late 1990s when I recognized the synergy, the combinatorial benefit of this drug, gemcitabine, with, with another drug called cisplatin. And, the, and that doublet became very active. So we, um, we had a patient from the City of Hope, which is a large medical center in, in California, and, and, and he was suffering from very advanced pancreatic cancer, and he was rapidly dying. He knew about my work, wanted to get a study done. The investigators there were not working with us, and he left that institution, traveled to uh, south of us, got a biopsy done, and lo and behold, Cystin Gem worked for him. So it was, a, it was brilliant for him. And he got it. One of my colleagues was kind enough to administer it according to our schedule, and he went into complete remission and lived many, many years. And, and it's interesting because that patient was so remarkable that in 1998, Scientific American wrote an article about him. And they showed a picture of him, and the caption of the picture was, patient experiencing a prolonged remission utilizing a controversial laboratory test to identify the treatment. Controversial laboratory test, I thought. This guy's walking his dog on the beach two years after he was diagnosed because of that controversial laboratory test. That was in 1998, and it's still a controversial laboratory test. But it provided this patient a curative outcome, or nearly curative, he lived many years, for a combination that wouldn't have been used, largely because the drug wasn't being applied that way. Drugs don't know what they were invented for. So I'd like to example two other, look at two other examples that are more recent. Once again, the idea behind repurposed drugs or using agents in novel ways. I was approached by colleagues in Sao Paulo, Brazil. I have a very close and warm relationship with my colleagues there, and I've worked for many years with those at the um, medical centers there. And um, one of them asked me if I could help a patient. She had been diagnosed with a mass in the right armpit with a location next to the right breast, and the tissue was removed. They ran it for every possible imaginable uh, feature, you know, immunohistochemical and molecular profile. Nothing popped up. There were no targets. There was nothing to do. So the doctors gave her conventional breast cancer therapy, and she failed to respond. I mean, she was on fire. By the time they sent me a copy of her PET scan, it was, it was, the tumor was everywhere. Her entire liver was replaced. So they called me, and they asked me, if I could possibly help. And I said, I would, of course. And they sent me a biopsy of the tissue. And it was a very interesting result because one of the drugs that really stood out to this patient, a drug that I would never normally have thought for a breast cancer, was a drug called serafinib. Serafinib is a small molecule targeted agent that targets the, the BRAF and VEGF and was approved for treatment of liver cancer, and for treatment of kidney cancer. And it's a pill. It's taken daily. And, and serafinib, or sold commercially as Nexivar, is not used in breast cancer. So when we reported our finding to the investigators in Sao Paulo, Brazil, and we said, look, I know this is unusual, but we found this odd level of activity. Would you be willing to consider giving her serafinib? 
They said, of course. I mean, she was failing, and they had no idea. And she was, I mean, actively dying at the time. So they gave her serafinib, which was beyond unusual, I guess. But I was very proud that they would be willing to listen to us. And she went into a complete and immediate remission, so dramatic that the PET scan returned to normal. After it had filled her liver with these malignant uh, clones, it, everything disappeared. And she, and she went into a complete remission and did beautifully. And, and in fact, a few years later, I was visiting, I was on a lecture tour in Sao Paulo, and I happened to be at the um, Albert Einstein Medical Center, the largest hospital in Sao Paulo. And, and while I was visiting and meeting with one of my colleagues, Dr. Nisi Yamaguchi, she said, oh, here, I want you to, to meet someone. And she, and she brought this lovely, healthy-appearing woman out and introduced her to me. And we took photographs together. And this was two years after her original diagnosis. And she looked the picture of health. And I was, I was just so impressed that this drug you would never think to use worked. In fact, we, we published a paper on that very study. It was um, reported in uh, Sage Press in uh, 2019. And we reported the story. We reported the example. And one of the things that was most interesting was that it allowed me to use that drug response, that outcome, that experience, to probe more deeply into what we had found and done. And when we did that, I discovered something I didn't even know about. I was led into an area of scientific investigation, and that area was a, a new, a new, previously undescribed way that cells die. After all, in our test tube, we measure whether drugs cause cells to die, and in this patient's cells, they died. So there had to be some reason why they died, and since serafinib doesn't seem to do much to breast cancer, there must have been something that serafinib, that this drug was doing to this breast cancer, that was causing those cells to die because they certainly died when the drug was given to her. It was a, a perfect connection between our findings and, and her response. So I, I, I began to be really interested in, in what it was about serafinib, and I happened to be at a conference at the American Association for Cancer Research, and I was listening in on program cell death mechanisms, and there was a guy named uh, Scott Dixon, who at the time I think was at Columbia and is now at Stanford, and Scott Dixon said, Gee whiz, I've discovered a new way that cells die. And, you know, I'm interested in cell death. That's what I do. And I thought, well, that's interesting. I want to hear what this guy has to say. So we said, well, we were working on this <clears throat> process, and we realized that there was a, a pathway in the cell, and that pathway could be, could be targeted by small molecules, and, and this pathway uh, causes cells to die rather quickly, and if you, if you inhibit it. I thought, oh, oh, okay, it's called XC, like uh, letter X with a small c. And it turned out that this was a pathway for amino acids to go in and out of the cell. But what was really interesting about that is he was describing compounds that, that affected this. And lo and behold, serafinib causes the process of cell death called ferroptosis. Serafinib uniquely causes this event. And in fact, I, I knew that in my own way because I had tested this patient's cells, not just against serafinib, but against a number of other related compounds that are called signal transduction inhibitors or targeted agents. And the other ones didn't do anything. Drugs that targeted the epidermal growth factor, even drugs that targeted VEGF, which is the target of, of um, mostly the target of serafinib. Even the drugs just like serafinib didn't kill her cells. And it turns out that only, only serafinib does this. So quite by, 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 by accident, my little laboratory model 
had not only enabled me to save a life, but enabled me to discover a fundamental principle of human cell growth and death processes, all based on observation, all based on reverse engineering the science of this. And so, again, this drug wasn't supposed to work, it just did. Drugs don't know what diseases they were invented for. And the last example I'd like to tell you about is one that was really close to my heart. Again, collaboration with Brazil, I was contacted by my colleague Renata Peixoto in, in uh, Sao Paulo. And Renata told me that she had a patient with adrenocortical carcinoma who was actively dying. And I said, gosh, Renata, I can't help adrenal cortical carcinoma. Adrenal cortical carcinoma rises in the organ over the kidney. You have two of them. They're small. And they produce many, many critical hormones like cortisol and aldosterone. And the adrenal cortical gland is very, very, very metabolically active. It's one of the most metabolically active portions of the whole body. And as a result of that, it doesn't suffer injuries very well. It's very resistant to chemo drugs. So when, when Renata called me and said, well, my patient needs your help, I said, well, tell me more about it. Well, she's 26, and she presented with metastatic disease, was all over the place in her lung, and they took out her kidney, and we gave her the standard chemotherapy, which consists of mitotain plus etoposide plus adriamycin plus platinum. And she said, well, I'd really like you to help me with this patient. I said, no, I, I can't. I can't help her. She's, she's, she's got a disease I can't help, I can't treat. And she said, well, look, she wants to come. Her family wanted her to come. They wanted, she'll, she'll die without you. I did everything I could to wave her off, but she came anyway, and she did arrive. And, and she came to my office with her family and her husband. She just recently married. She's a 26, beautiful young woman. And she insisted that we take her to thoracotomy, that we open up her chest, take out a piece of tumor, and remove that so we could, so we could measure the effect of drugs. And what drug did we find? Well, we were testing a compound for a Japanese pharmaceutical company, and it was thought to be a mitochondrial inhibitor. So I was using another mitochondrial inhibitor called fenformin as a control. I was testing fenformin, the parent compound, to metformin, the most widely used oral hypoglycemic for diabetes. So when this patient's fenformin results stood out on the page, I thought, huh, I wonder if this patient could take metformin. So we offered to, to support through the, the use of metformin, and the, the doctor, Renato Peixoto in, in Brazil, started the patient on metformin. And a few months later, I got a lovely email in kind of broken English because the patient's English wasn't very good, but it was very sweet. And she said how well she was doing and how easy it was to take the treatment, and that her tumors had disappeared, and she was back to a normal life, and her hair grew in, and she, and she felt so good. It was so gratifying. And we went on to then study why and what we had done, and I worked with, with the Children's Hospital Research Institute in, in Oakland with Bruce Ames and Dr. Mark Chinagaga, and we drilled down onto the mechanisms of action of metformin in this disease, and although we're not entirely sure we figured it out, I came to the conclusion that there was a specific mutation that she carried called P53, and that the specific location of this mutation in the gene caused metformin to work. And, and we went on to report that finding uh, in, in uh, Sage Press in, in an article um, 
in a journal called Rare Tumors that was published in 2018. And it's an example, again, of the laboratory model identifying activity that no one else would have expected. It's an example, again, in treating cancer patients that you must follow your instincts and use objective laboratory models that instruct us on how to use drugs and treatments. And it's an example, again, that cancer drugs don't know what diseases they were invented for. Mm -hmm.